the scriptures or on your app to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For several weeks now, we've been in a sermon series entitled Tough Questions. Uh, During this sermon series, we've sought to answer some of the tougher questions that are asked about God and his word. Now, some of these questions are asked by outsiders, by unbelievers, by skeptics, by critics of Christians and Christianity. And oftentimes, these questions are asked rhetorically. Uh, By that, I mean, technically speaking, they're interrogative statements. They end in a question mark. But sometimes they're asked in such a way that you wonder if the inquirer is really looking for an answer or if their mind is already made up and they're just seeking to make a point. Like, how can you trust the Bible? Like, when someone asks you that question like that, do you think they're really looking for an answer as to how you trust the Bible? Tell me, oh, person, how you've come to this journey. How do you trust the Bible, right? Like, like, like sometimes people ask questions, and the question isn't really looking for an answer, but seeking to make a point. Why is the church so full of hypocrites anyway? Uh, how could a good God, a good God, allow so much evil and suffering? Uh, is Jesus really the only way to God? So sometimes you can ask these questions, or these questions might be asked of you, but you have to wonder, is the person really looking for an answer? Now, today is Easter Sunday, or Resurrection Sunday. So on this day, we're looking to celebrate, but also to answer the question, did Jesus really rise from the grave? And the answer is yes. He is risen. He is risen indeed. How do we know this to be true? Well, let's get right to it. And to get right to it, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, we're not going to only be spending our time there, but that's probably the, the most consistent passage of Scripture that when we get to, you'll probably appreciate being able to flip through that and to look at what I'm saying from the Word of God. But as you turn there, let me just make sure that you realize point number one on your outline God spared no ink in making sure the Bible was abundantly clear that Jesus is alive. Now, in your Bibles, the first four books of the New Testament are what we refer to as what? As the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, Matthew, Mark, and John were firsthand witnesses of Jesus' earthly ministry. All responded to Christ's call to follow him, and that's what they did. Luke, however, is different in that he was not an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry, as the other gospel writers were, but writes an account of what other eyewitnesses told him they saw Jesus do and heard Jesus say. Now, all the gospels were written separately. At times they harmonize, at other times they do not. You can see the different personalities of the writers as they write. For example, Luke was a physician, so it's no surprise to see him giving like a lot of time and attention to the healing ministry of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Matthew has an obvious Jewish flavor, seeking to clearly establish Jesus as the Messiah foretold by countless Old Testament prophecies. And so throughout his gospel, Matthew quotes over 60 Old Testament prophecies showing how Christ fulfilled them all. But do you know what they all include? Uh, Whether they're eyewitnesses or not, whether they have a Jewish flavor or a more Gentile flavor or not, you know what you'll find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? The fact that Jesus rose from the grave. That's big news. That's like front page above the fold news that would be covered by anyone who had anything to do with Jesus Christ. All four gospel writers separately recorded the same great truth. Why? 
Because when somebody rises from the grave, that kind of gets burned into your memory, burned into your mind and heart. Matthew 28, uh, following uh, verses 5 and following. But the angel said to the women, as the women went to the grave, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They, then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 4, And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they had laid him. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 5. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And the Gospel of John, chapter 20, beginning in verse 5. And stooping to look in, as they look into the cave, the tomb where Jesus was laid, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. He is risen. All four gospel writers say the same thing. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, I had you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the reason I had you do that is because I wanted to point out something else that someone else said, and that is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul never saw Jesus during his earthly ministry, but he heard of him. How do we know that? Because he was persecuting Christians when Jesus appeared to him, spoke to him, asked him why he was doing what he was doing, and converts him as he was heading to Damascus to persecute more Christians. So it should be no surprise that Paul dedicates an entire chapter in his letter to the church in Corinth to the resurrection. Because he's like, you've got to hear what happened to me. Like, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Yes. How do you know that, Paul? Well, I was uh, on my way on the road to Damascus, and he appeared to me, struck me blind, had me led into Damascus where somebody met me uh, who prayed over me, and things like scales fell from my eyes, and I was converted, and I was baptized, and now instead of killing Christians, I figured I would make them. How are you doing today? Paul believes that Jesus had risen from the grave. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15. Now take a look at chapter 15, verse 12. First thing he says is if Jesus didn't rise, neither will believers rise. Chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So the first thing he says is, look, 
Just understand the implications of not believing that Jesus rose from the grave. Uh, If you do not believe that Jesus rose from the grave, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then neither will anybody rise from the dead. Next, in verse 16, he says that if Jesus didn't rise, moreover, the sacrifice that he made on the cross was insufficient. Check out 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 and following. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are what? Still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if we're living life in a way to be pleasing to Christ, who is dead, well then of all the people on God's green earth, we are the most pitiful people in the world. If we're trying to please someone who can't be pleased by our life, if we're trying to serve someone who can't be served by the things that we're doing because he's dead, if we're preaching a gospel, inviting people to follow somebody who can't be followed because he can't be moving because he's dead, friends, we are of all people most to be pitied, most to be pitied. Also, if Jesus, if, if what you have to realize is that since Jesus did rise, believers will rise too. Look at verse 20 in 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, meaning he has gone ahead. He has been the first person to rise in that, in that way and that people will continue to rise from the grave and have eternal life who believe in him. Look at verse 21. For as by a man came death, that man being Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all dies, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Since Jesus rose, we have the promise of rising from the grave if we believe in him. Next, since Jesus did rise, we know he has victory over sin and death. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 and following. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Skip down to verse uh, 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Since Jesus did rise, we know he has victory over sin, and we know he has victory over death. 
And it's an interesting fact to see Paul calling people who are not preaching this, who are not doing this, who are not sharing this good news, and saying, awake from your drunken stupor because there are people who don't know this truth. There are people who don't know the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. And this good news needs to be spread to all people so that people might know and that by knowing they might believe and that by believing they might be saved. Since Jesus did rise, we know he has victory over the most ultimate enemy that faces every single solitary human being on God's green earth, and that is death. Since believers will rise, uh, letter E in your outline, we will receive a glorious resurrected body and will have ultimate victory over sin and death in every single way. Uh, Look at verse 35. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another for the stars, and for stars differ from star and glory, etc., etc. Verse 42 says, "So, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Why is Paul telling us this? Look at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on an imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. You see, because believers will rise, because Jesus rose from the grave, we'll receive a resurrected body and we'll have ultimate victory over sin and death in every way. I have to clear my throat from time to time. That's not going to happen in heaven. Okay? You have issues with your body. There are times when you wake up in the morning just like me and you look in the mirror and you realize that time and gravity have not been kind. And when you are in heaven, if you're a believer, you'll receive a body. And it's not just about looking better or feeling better, but you don't realize how much your body is affected by sin each and every day. You don't realize that the most beautiful thing that you have ever seen, and I don't know where you've, many of you have traveled way more widely than I have. The most beautiful sunset, the most beautiful mountaintop experience, the most, the brightest city skyline, whatever comes to your mind, you have to understand that every single bit of what you've ever seen is cursed. Sin has an effect on everything. Sin has an effect on every single solitary living object 
in God's creation in every way, shape, and form, including our bodies. But if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if we put our faith and trust in him, we're promised that this body is temporary, but that God will give us a new body that will not be affected, infected, and defected by sin. And all of that is because he is risen. More than that, Jesus appeared to many, many people after his resurrection. He appeared to the people that we discussed beforehand uh, that when we were covering the four gospel accounts, the disciples and the women who went to his grave. He appeared to Thomas. We read about that in the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. He appeared to the disciples. He performed a miracle and even ate breakfast in their presence, which is a key thing to realize, that this was not just some mirage or some ghost but that he actually sat down and ate food in front of the disciples, further verifying that they're not losing their minds. Because I'm sure they would be thinking, we have lost our minds. We watched this person die. We watched him suffer and die. They buried him, and now we see him, but we're probably losing our minds. But he appears over and over and over again. He meets with them. He dines with them. He invites Thomas to even inspect his actual wounds. He appeared 500 to, to 500 plus people at one time. We read about that also in 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared to the disciples before he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1. And as we said before, he appeared to Paul. Jesus is alive. And here's something else that I want you to see. That God even used the chief priests' lies to show that Jesus really did rise from the grave. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 28. Chapter 28, beginning in verse 11. Matthew chapter 28, just before the Gospel of Mark. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 11. Now, there was a guard of soldiers who were guarding Jesus' tomb, okay? And that guard of soldiers then sees what happens and is now going along their way. And that's where we pick it up in verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place, okay? So they're going to go and tell them what had taken place. So what would they be talking about? Well, that would have included an earthquake, the rolling away of a huge stone, a blazing angel sitting on the stone, and the fact that the tomb was empty. That is what they would have reported to the chief priest when they said, oh, they're going into the city to tell them what would have happened. But look at verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave a sufficient amount of, a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people this. Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Translation, we'll make sure that you don't get killed. Because what they would have been saying is we didn't do our job because we were there to guard the tomb. And somehow the disciples came by us, Roman soldiers, right, came by us while we were sleeping behind our backs, all of a sudden rolled away a tomb maybe stomp their feet and create an earthquake. I don't know what they would have said. Rolled away the stone from the tomb and stole a body. And they would have been 
I mean, the, the, the axe was above their head for the job that they would have been doing. Like, why did that happen? We asked you to guard a tomb. Like, you had one job. You couldn't do this? What's going on? But they said, and if this comes, verse 14, if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Verse 15, so they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Friends, the fact the chief priests didn't confirm the soldier's account and felt the need to manipulate how it would be told to others is key. It's key because there is no amount of evidence that would cause them to believe. There was no fact. There was no reporting. Nothing. They simply were not going to believe. But here's the thing. If what those soldiers had said was preposterous and unbelievable and ridiculous, there wouldn't be anything to cover up. Do do, do you see that? That if what the soldiers were saying was preposterous and ridiculous and completely unbelievable, why would they go so far as to form this cover-up? Why would they pay them to make sure that they said something else? They orchestrate a massive cover-up, pay them off, promise to pay off the governor as well, in order to control how the story would be retold. Why? Because they knew it to be true. It wouldn't make sense for it not to be true. They felt the earthquake. Think earthquakes are that localized? They know the curtain in the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. They know these things happen. If they didn't, there wouldn't be anything to cover up. And that's why we read what we do in Matthew 28 and verse 15. They took the money, did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And do you see how cool that is? That even their lies to disprove the resurrection actually do more to prove it? Even their attempt to cause this cover-up shows there's obviously something that needed to be covered up? We're reminded of Joseph's words in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for what? For good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And again, we're reminded that God even works through his enemies to show himself true and powerful and alive. He is risen indeed. But finally, you know what the greatest proof of the power of our risen Savior? The greatest proof of all, the greatest evidence to point to the power of our God. It's changed lives changed lives. The disciples were changed from hiding and fearful to an unstoppable movement that would literally change the world forever. You know, people come down on the disciples and they were such cowards. Bro, if you were following somebody who was then all of a sudden arrested and brutally crucified and you watched that happen and you were following them and then you realized that they were now on a witch hunt to get others, you'd probably find yourselves in some upper room as well. Am I right? Can we really blame these people? They were cowards. You know the end of the story, man. Cut them some slack. But what ends up happening? They don't stay there for long. Yeah, they're there for a little bit. But God changes them into an unstoppable movement that would literally change the world forever, even to this day. What about Paul? Like we mentioned before, Paul was changed from a Christian killing Jesus hater to a 
gospel-preaching Jesus lover, converter of people to Christianity. That's a night and day change. For what reason would that happen other than the sovereign saving grace of God at work in this once terrorist man's life? But you know what? It's not just the disciples. It's not just those people who are in the upper room. It's not just the Apostle Paul. It's people like you and me. Changed from dead in our sins without hope to having been made alive in Christ and promised eternal life after death. That'll change someone. What about you? Did Jesus really rise from the grave? Again, sometimes people ask tough questions rhetorically with their minds already made up, refusing to seek an answer. They're immovable. They can't be convinced otherwise. They're just not going to believe. And maybe that's you. Maybe you came in here today with your mind already made up, saying, I don't know much. Actually, not a Bible scholar, but I do know that dead people don't live because they're dead. And so I'm happy to be here, kind of, sort of, but it's a little crazy to say that dead people walk around, despite what the TV shows say. We look out the window and we see a cemetery across the street, and the only people walking are those who are alive. And so you come in perhaps... Uh, you have your mind already made up. But perhaps you consider the fact that all four gospel writers include this. Or the fact that multiple people saw Jesus with their own eyes on several different occasions in several different places. And that time and space simply wouldn't have allowed them to corroborate together to form a massive hoax. Perhaps you see the Apostle Paul speaking so much about it when he's writing to the Corinthian church. And that a man who sought to kill Christians and end Christianity was changed by the living Christ and sought to convert people to Christianity and ended up being used by God to spread the gospel perhaps more than any other. Perhaps you see the fact that although the chief priest sought to spread lies, it actually serves to confirm the truth. Perhaps you see people who have had their lives changed by this gospel and perhaps you just know deep down that you're a sinner with no way to make things right because you can't undo the things you've done. You can't change your own mind and heart. You can't unthink what you've thought. And in some way, shape, or form, you feel dead inside. And you say, dead people can't fix themselves. Dead people can't come to Jesus. And you know what? You're 100% right. Uh, you can try to, rec- if, if somebody's dead, you can pump medicine in them all you want. You can scream at them to come forward, but at the end of the day, they're what? They are dead. But God can raise the dead. God can raise the dead. But God, he changes hearts and minds and lives for his glory and our good. And that's the truth of the good news. That's the gospel that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved, Ephesians chapter 2. And that he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in 
Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Friends, I can't make you do anything. I can't coerce you to be made right with God. I, I don't presume to know what God is doing in your heart and in your mind right now. However, I can say this based on the authority of God's holy word. Today, today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 15. So you might be a skeptic. This might be the one time you've ever been in church or the one day each year you're in church. And that's fine. I'm glad you're here. But if there's something awry in your mind and heart, if something's just up, if something is just a bit off, uh, if you are doubting your doubts, if you're finding yourself skeptical about your own skepticism, harden not your hearts. Lean into what God might be doing in your life. Right here, right now, with you and you alone. No group think. No, just I'm talking about what you're thinking right now about the word of God that has been preached. If you heard something for the first time today that you can't get out of your head, if you heard something for the hundredth time today but you can't get it out of your head, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion. Lean into what God is doing in your life right now. Let God give you a story to fill in the blanks that are on the bottom of your outline if you take a look at that. See, sometimes people will ask me, how do I, Christian, like, how do I put together a testimony? How do I think through like, like how to tell my story? This is three pretty easy phrases to think through. I was, fill in the blank, but God fill in the blank. So now, and then you fill in the blank. That's it. What were you? What did God do? And now, how has that changed your life? I was a hell-bound, hell-deserving sinner, but God opened my eyes to the truth that he sent his son to die on the cross for sinners like me. And so now, I live a life that is imperfect, but I try to please him. I was, but God so now. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let God give you a story to fill in the blanks on, uh, that, that you see there in your outline. Big or small, long or short, everyone who has ever believed in Jesus has this story to tell. Who they were, what God did, and who they are now. I was, but God, so now. All right, so this wasn't in the notes. But I wonder, hey, Dave Werns, how do you fill in those blanks? What were you? What did God do? And now what? 
Amen. Everyone say, he is risen. Amen. Andrew Cottle, where are you? There you are. Go. Amen. He is risen. Anyone else? Amen. Maybe one or two more. Maybe David Clegg. Amen. He is risen. Just in case you're new among us, God saves women too. You may not. So I'm curious if we would have a woman stand and fill in these blanks for us. Or you don't have to stand, just scream it out. Amen. One more. And so some of you look at these words at the bottom of your outline and you hear everybody talking about what they were, but you look at it and you don't see I was, you see I am. And people are talking about what's in their past and that God has changed their lives because he's saved them. They've put their faith and trust in him. And none of these people are perfect. None of them. None of them. But they've put their faith and trust in Jesus. They believe that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient to pay for their sins. And now they live a life and they seek to be pleasing and honoring to him. And they can only say, I was, because at some point they came forward and say, I am in need. 
I am a sinner. I, I am in need of a Savior. I, I believe that Jesus is that Savior, that he died on the cross for a sinner like me, that he rose from the grave, and that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And they put all their eggs, see what I did there? All their eggs in one basket, see what I did there? And their thinking has been changed because they understand the truth of the gospel. And you might look at these lines and say, I can't say what I was. I can only say what I am. And I would say, but God can change that. God can give you eternal life today through his, not once alive, but now dead, but through his living son who died on the cross for sinners like you and like me and who has risen from the grave. He is risen. He is risen indeed. So I'm going to pray right now, and I would ask you to um, pray along with me, and then I'm going to call our worship team up actually right now, and then we're going to sing a couple of songs in closing. But I want to pray for you. And um, yeah, Father, I come before you thankful for your word, thankful for the change that you bring about in our lives. And Lord, for those who spoke, they're rejoicing in what you already have done. They're here because they know that you're alive, that you have risen, and that they themselves have been raised from the dead, raised from being dead in their trespasses and sins and have been given hope and have been given help in Christ. Yes, for this life, but more importantly for the next. But Lord, I think about uh, those who perhaps know you not, or those who perhaps have not considered your claims and its effect on their lives. God in heaven, for your glory and your glory alone, would you save people today? Would you cause the, the preaching of your perfect word to go and to penetrate hearts and minds in a new and a fresh way that they might think through what they are and the change that you can bring about in their lives to change them from dead in their trespasses and sins to being made alive in Christ. Oh God in heaven, would you save souls? Would you heal minds? Would you give life where there is none? Give us the story to tell of your glory and your saving grace. I pray, Lord, that this would be the first Easter for many among us who perhaps would be made believers as a result of the word that was preached today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen.